everybody. Mike and Tim here. It is a holly jolly Christmas time. We hope. Tim, what is your <laughs> favorite? What is your favorite Christmas song? Oh man. Do you have do you have like or or, or a couple? Well, I think my favorite favorite is the main track from the um peanuts. Like the I can't the, think of the name of it because you're just the Christmas me on the special. Spot. Yeah, you know, like the trio, the jazz trio song, the Christmas time is here or whatever. Like, the oh yeah, 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 kind of soft jazz. I always yeah. love that song. Yeah, my favorite right. probably right now though is the Run DMC song because it was Mazzy, my wow. daughter's. Like, we would dance to that all the time. I love that. It's a good Christmas song. I mean, I'm just saying. Every you know, everybody puts out a Christmas album. Nothing we- says Christmas like Run DMC. Totally. Totally. Um, all right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got. Wait, what's yours? What's mine? Yeah. Oh, bro, I'm I'm a sucker for Little Drummer Boy. Like um, which version of it? Yeah. Well, there was the. Um, oh, what's the name of it? The like, Harry Simone, uh, choir. Let me find it real quick. Um. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, the Harry Simone Chorale. So this was like 40s, 50s. Um, I just love it. I remember being a kid. I, I have no idea why, but I, I, I had remember being a kid watching. The, it was a special, right? Yeah. It was one of those like an, like not animated, but sort of like stop motion specials and weeping. <laughs> I don't know why, but that song just always gets me. It's always the first song I play it's when it's time to play Christmas music. What is it? Yes. What is it drum, like this morning on the way to school, the kids are playing songs that were from Home Alone, like Carol the mm, Bells. And, yes, yes, yes. Um, and then there's one that always makes me think of Die Hard because it was in all the trailers. Like the maybe oh, it's just, that's funny. Was it Ode to Joy? That's funny. But they had like a big bombastic version of it that played in all the trailers all the time. I love that man. I um, you know, Die Hard, the Christmas movie. Of course, put the debate to rest. Did you see the advent calendar? Where now I have a machine gun. Ho ho ho! Yeah, I did. That's great. (laughs) The advent calendar that's got the guy Hans, you know, free falling (laughs) down from from one to twenty five or (laughs) twenty five to one or whatever it is. Um, Anyway, friends, (laughs) thank you for tuning in today. Um, We've got a show. And uh, we're going to just do a quick intro because we've got one of my favorite theologians. Um, She is a Pauline scholar who has written commentaries, like in huge commentary series on Ephesians and Philippians. All right. So the, like you, you are, she is a world-class, world-class scholar. Um, And when people talk about like, who are some of your favorite female scholars, she is, absolutely that she wrote a book called women in the world of the earliest christians illuminating ancient ways of life and um that's where i discovered dr lynn kohick um and you can buy that book on amazon and it's just it's surprising how much women were permitted to do in culture and then the analog of well that carries over into the church and uh, I've been wanting to have her on the podcast forever, and um, we thought as a part of the conversation we've been having around men and women and so on, uh, she'd be great because, I mean, she is a world-class theologian. 
and the you know the battle that she's had to fight to kind of get there we'll talk about you know a little bit and we'll also revisit first timothy 2 um and uh and just in general sort of talk about her approach to these issues and how often we start kind of on the wrong foot with the wrong questions um not where the bible starts which is this the massive affirmation of women's value dignity role um, so, uh, so we're excited for that. I want to just say a couple of quick thank yous to our, um, we have some new patrons. Um, again, uh, this is the time for year end giving. If you're interested in that, we are a 501c3 nonprofit and there are two platforms that, uh, we use. You can find them both on voxologypodcast.com, tithe.ly and Patreon. Um, we had three people join the Patreon team this last week. And so I just want to do a quick shout out to them. I want to thank Lilia. I think that's how you pronounce it. Paul. I know that's how you pronounce that. And Pushpa, um, who um, we've mentioned before, but came on as kind of an annual uh, subscriber. And so I just want to say thank you to the three of you. Um, we talked a little bit on Patreon this past week about where the podcast is going. Um, we're excited to add a YouTube channel and to begin filming uh, our episodes and releasing our faces, particularly Tim's, into the world. <laughs> um, we want to do some things for overburdened and really lonely, burned out, hurting ministry leaders. Uh, we want to do some things. Um, we want to better organize Patreon um, and then, and then we want to um, begin again to uh, to see community happen out of the podcast. We get so many questions from people who are asking, "Hey, do you know of a good church in this area, or is there anyone I could connect with?" And uh, Tim was kind of spearheading that before the pandemic, and we're excited to get back to that. All that is to say. All of that extra stuff is possible because of your generosity. So thank you very much for all of that. Um, like I said, today we're going to have an interview with uh, Dr. Kohik, and then we're going to wrap up the Men and Women series next week. Um, th there may be a Christmas episode. We're not sure. Um, God bless us, everyone. If there is, if there's not, <laughs> we'll see. But uh, that's what's coming. So, guys, we just couldn't be more thankful for you, thankful to get to do all of this uh, together with you. And so, Tim. What? Since Seth isn't here, hit that music. Play my theme song. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are here today with a heavyweight, and I don't mean physically. Oh, thank I you. I mean, in, yeah. Well, we already have one You're of those. Dig yourself in a hole here, Mike. Oh, Sorry, yeah, I know. Seriously, ahead. that's that's where we start. No, heavyweight intellectually, one of my favorite theologians, Dr. Lynn Kohek. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been super excited to have a conversation with you about this idea of biblical womanhood and um, and the passages that are often used to restrict the roles of women. If I could sort of start way back in the day, uh, what was your inherited culture? Were you raised in a religious home? If you were, what, what 
teachings did you receive about the role of women in the church, in the home, in culture, um, if any? And, uh, and then I'd love to kind of pick up your journey from, from there. Yeah, well, thanks, Mike and Tim. Thanks so much for inviting me on to this uh, podcast. Uh, typically, when someone meets me, uh, heavyweight is not uh, my uh, five foot three frame. Uh, doesn't <laughs> doesn't <laughs> elicit, you know, like a heavyweight boxer uh, image. So, well, but <laughs> I, I thank see, you I'm for that. I kind of like that. I'm gonna. I'm I gonna had use I that. had read you. <laughs> So that's that's go. where the heavyweight comes <laughs> in. Go. Yeah, I like that. Thanks. Um, well, I was raised in um, probably what I would call a nominal Christian family. We were United mm-hmm. Methodist. I was baptized as an infant into the church. Um, and we would go sporadically. I think my parents um, believed the Christian message, but it wasn't mm-hmm. um, an integral part of their of their lives, I think they would say at this point. But when I was in junior high, uh, and my mom and I especially were going to United Methodist Church, um, the pastor there and also the uh, the youth pastor both were born again. Mm. And, and I really heard the gospel in an exciting way at that point. Mm. So both my mom and I, uh, came to faith, you know, had had an experience that way. And within a short while, that United Methodist Church removed both of those pastors as preaching things they didn't really like. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so at that point, I shifted and my mom, we shifted to an evangelical free church that had just mm. started about a year earlier. I was raised, I'm the firstborn, and um i think my uh i remember my dad telling me and my sister who was a couple years younger than me you know don't be cream puffs girls you know get get on out there you know Mm -hmm, and we did mm -hmm. downhill skiing as kids we rode horses as kids did fox hunting um we were you know we were just outside doing we we were uh free range kids i think is how uh (laughs) they might say it today there that was just how kids were (laughs) back in the day which i'm glad for so um when i first came to as a 16 year old as i was talking about my faith i remember my dad saying oh well then you'll just you'll be a pastor right Mm. well at this point we had been in the e-free church for a little while and i said oh no dad women can't be pastors Mm-hmm. So I think there I was raised that women could do that because in the United Methodist, you know, mm-hmm. that that wasn't a, an issue at that time. And it certainly wasn't yeah. an issue with my parents, but it was an issue with the E-Free Church. This would have been in the um, late 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so that kind of set me up as I kind of was hearing two. There, there were two different visions uh, that were yeah. cast. One was that women could serve um, and and speak the speak the word um, uh, to others, teaching and preaching. And then another, which was more isolated, women could maybe do that. Could could teach other women, but not mm-hmm. teach mm-hmm. men. Yeah, yeah. And and when did that view begin to shift? Uh, was it something that you resisted? and instinctively the view that you were restricted in certain roles or how how did you start engaging that that smaller vision either critically or did you sort of inherit it and didn't think to question it until later no i think i probably questioned it kind of from the get-go um 
in a, well, not at the very beginning when I was 16, you know, I'm just learning stuff at that point. But by the time I go off to college and I am uh, really very interested in becoming a New Testament professor, I, mm. I had that dream probably by the time I was a junior in college and I always loved to teach. So at first I was an uh, early childhood elementary education mm. uh, major and then I worked with children and for the sake of the children, <laughs> I changed. <laughs> yeah, it was not a good fit. I do not have the skills. <laughs> not even close. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, I thought, well, how about older kids? That might be yeah. better all the way around. So yeah, yeah. So uh, so that was yeah. In pursuing that and going on and getting my PhD, I went straight from undergrad to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and began working on my PhD in New Testament. And I think because I was learning um, about the ancient world and about uh, the New Testament world at, you know, pretty high level, mm -hmm. um, and I had always wanted to teach, I think I just began banging up against the uh, restrictions at our church. Mm. I I, re I wanted to teach in um, adult education. I didn't really care whether I was an elder or not. That really didn't, wasn't a goal of mine. Uh, my husband was an elder for a short while, you know, and he was on the worship team. He was very involved along those lines, but I did want to teach. And this, the church did not have a written policy against women teaching in uh, mixed adult Sunday school classes, but there were a couple of people, a couple of men, there were only men on the uh, education uh, committee, yeah. and a couple of them didn't want women to to do that, and so they put up a lot of roadblocks, mm -hmm. a lot of roadblocks, and I'm kind of, <laughs> I, I can be Heavyweight, persistent. let's use it, I, let's heavyweight. use the word. There you go, I'm going to use that, yes. So I didn't give up, and I yeah. kept uh, pushing and being an irritant, and um, yeah, that's <laughs> uh, one of my spiritual gifts. <laughs> I love it, I love it. And when you were when you were studying New Testament, what was becoming apparent to you that you hadn't heard in the church about this? Yeah, well, I would say there was a moment for me, um, one of the days that I was taking the train from Harrisburg to Philadelphia early in the morning, getting the 6 a.m. train to get my <laughs> classes, you know, and uh, like a good evangelical start the day, Bible reading and prayer, you oh, know, yeah. which is a mainstay, right? I mean, you just have to yeah. have that connection, whatever time of day it is, but that connection, that daily connection with the Lord. And uh, I think I was reading from the earliest NIV when you mm -hmm. had the male generic pronoun, he and yeah. him. Yeah. And uh, and so I was reading, I think, from 1 Corinthians, and that masculine pronoun kept coming up. And I remember almost coming to tears and and just saying, Lord, am I am I anywhere here? Mm. And mm. Wow. not. Yeah. And at the same time, I was taking a class on feminism and Christianity and ev everyone in the class, there were only women, there were about 20 women or so, all mm. of them uh, except one and myself were what they would call themselves post Christian. Mm. This is in the mid 80s. And so there was a sense that, you know, the church had nothing for women. It was only oppressive for women. There was an, a, as I mentioned, there was one other Christian who I think was 
maybe Angle, Episcopal. Mm. Um, otherwise, it was just me. And my heart broke. I thought, oh, I wish you women would know Jesus because the experience that you had in the church sounds like it was awful, but that's not who Jesus is. So I think the uh, saying, I knew that I was, that God addressed me in the Bible and that, and my heartbreak there in my prayers was this insistent on the generic male pronoun mm. was, was, um, was a, a, uh, it was like a, a barrier. Like I, I, yeah, yeah, that, that was frustrating. But on the other side, thought, you know, I want, I want to know Jesus more and I want other women to know Jesus more. I don't want there to be for them to, reject Jesus be, because the church appears to them to have forsaken them. So yeah. I, I think that's what that 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 I would say was was kind of the defining mm -hmm. moments that set me on my my journey to both engage with scripture more deeply and see what the Lord really has in his word and mm -hmm. do so for the sake of the church, especially those who leave the church uh, because of misunderstandings or, or frankly, as we now know, just a lot of sin that yeah. um, has hurt women. How would you have, a, you know, now, however many years later, how would you address you then in terms of what have you learned a sense that would have been revolutionary to you about whether it's the masculine pronoun or Paul's emphasis on, um, uh, overturning, uh, you know, j kind of gendered um, roles uh, through the household codes or whatever it is. What is it that you've that you would say to yourself back then? Yeah, well, I I would say to myself, and I have said to my students who are undergrads at Wheaton College, where I taught for a long time, I would say first of all, it gets better. That is to say, you get better in mm -hmm. your twenties. Um, you know the the world's all in front of you, but you don't have a lot of successes behind you, or at least I didn't. Uh, and I think most people don't. So you're still trying to find yourself you're, and you're fragile. I think mm. men are fragile too. I mean, it's just the age that you are, mm -hmm. but the yeah. fragileness is experienced by women in different ways, especially when they sense like they're, they have a godly passion to pursue mm -hmm. at the highest levels, biblical studies, and teaching and sharing the word and then they get the door slammed in their face meanwhile their male friends who may be as smart or maybe not get doors opened all the time and there's a tremendous amount of doubt and you feel like yeah. you're an imposter so i would say first of all to them it does get better like keep at it don't uh don't give up you're going to need to persevere then i think I would have, uh, uh, I can say now there's a lot of resources out there, including better translations, I think, that help mm -hmm. capture uh, what the Greek is really saying, uh, that it's not trying to only mm -hmm. talk to men or about men, but it, uh, we can in our English translation be more general and include like brothers and sisters instead of just brothers, even though the Greek term is in the masculine, it's not trying to exclude women. So I think there are better translations out there. Um, there are more resources out there that give alternative interpretations. Um, when I was um, just starting out on this, this journey, my younger self, uh, the 
Christians for Biblical Equality was just starting up yeah. and other groups like that just starting. Now there's so many resources. So I would, um, that's, you know, something mm-hmm. I can say now that, that I couldn't say back then. Yeah. And, and what, what surprised you as you dove into the Greek text and the, the New Testament? What surprised you theologically that you had always been told but wasn't true when you actually regarded the text more seriously? I, th- I think I was surprised at how much women were doing. Mm-hmm. And, and how when we would talk about what they did, we would use language that was um, maybe belittling or... Hmm. Uh, so let me think of an example here. In um, the end of Romans, Romans 16, we have Phoebe who was a benefactor of Paul, but early translations would say she was a helper, mm. you know? And so wow. when you, yeah, that's not necessarily a completely illegitimate translation to say helper, but for us, it sounds mm-hmm. like- Inferior or- Yeah, inferior, exactly. And people chose, you know, why, why would someone choose that translation versus benefactor? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because they're- <laughs> <laughs> There's sexism in some of the translations. I don't know how else to what? say it, you know? I Sorry, sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, anyway, I think that, that surpri- those kind of things would surprise me. Um, mm-hmm. I think also um, what, I, what I grew up with were people starting with uh, what they, sort of propositional claims and finding what they might think of as propositional statements in the biblical text. And then fr- from that, 1 Timothy 2, for example, mm-hmm. see everything else. They mm. say, all right, well, what if we started instead by looking at Priscilla and Aquila and their life? And what was it that Priscilla found lacking in Apollos and felt comfortable turning to him and saying, I got to teach you a little bit more about this mm-hmm. uh, gospel that we both preach and luke feeling comfortable describing that in the book of acts if i start there and i know that there are women who were co-workers with paul yodia and syntyche in philippians chapter 4 they're co-workers with paul they're they are active in the church and their opinions matter because they have influence i start there and then i read First Timothy two, think uh, you know I that mm. changes things. So I think what happened was yeah. people had these propositional truths. I mean, we kind of approach Christianity that way anyway. You know, like evidence that demands a verdict. It, a kind of approach that way, an apologetics approach, yeah. and not so much a narrative approach. But I think when we look at at the stories and we see the interaction and we create the communities that these churches were, we find women were just incredibly active in mm-hmm. in all different areas and that's important to note do you see um i don't remember which john it is second or th- second john or third john but written to the lady do you see that as written to a church leader uh, I, who's I was, female yeah i could totally see that absolutely yeah, yeah i don't think the same with nympha the church that meets at her house right you know these these are um yeah it, it doesn't seem to be a problem for the early church. 
Right. And Paul, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul uses the same words to describe their ministry as he does um, the, their masculine counterparts in their ministry, yeah. right? Their co-laborers or their partners yeah. in the gospel or whatever it That's is. Right. There's no difference in the wording, correct? Right, right, yeah. So if you start with the great and vast it's seeming permissiveness of, of, of Paul in his practice, and at least Jesus in his practice, mm-hmm. um, how, do you then, how do you then understand 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 11 or 14? Um, and pick either, you know, any of those if, if you'd like to talk about. How do, we, how do we approach those texts that seem so clear in English that we can just pull them out by themselves and say, yep, well, here it is. It's absolutely forbidden forever and, you know, case closed. How do we approach those things differently? I think um, biblical studies is becoming more comfortable with the idea of looking at the historical context, mm. not to say that the historical context therefore limits uh, the the um, text to simply being only relevant to the first century, but especially in the form of letters, in our that genre really demands that we understand what's going on hmm. because we're hearing one part of a conversation. It's different than writing a novel where the yeah. um, context and and all of that is put together for you. In this mm-hmm. case, a letter there's. There's a lot that's not said, but rather is assumed. So, for example, when Paul will say to Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach. What? Most people, uh, sorry, did you not know that? Was that no, not in your Bible? No, that, <laughs> it was never, I never heard that part though. Well, yeah, of course. And we, we, uh, <laughs> we as teetotalers, uh, my husband and I, in, in, in our early marriage, you know, that was always kind of a, something you chuckled about, ha ha, you know. Yeah. Uh, but we all knew that back then they didn't have Pepto-Bismol. So, of course, the the prescription there is for Timothy to take care of himself. And and so we, we understand, although the words literally are asking him to drink wine, that's not the thought that's being communicated. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, um, that's one piece that... Um, I think biblical scholars now are appreciating more and more. Um, and I think also, well, let's just go First uh, Timothy 2 for right, mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. now. Um, if we start in verse 11, um, as though that's kind of the beginning of the letter, we end up missing what's really going on. What's really going on is at the very beginning of the letter, Paul is very clear that there are heretical teachers. Mm-hmm. And those heretical teachers are promoting falsehoods these um they i think they can include women but the the um it's it's a masculine plural so we Mm -hmm. know there are also men who are uh very um oh they're teaching uh myths endless genealogies they provoke controversial speculations um they they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. These are really strong claims. And that's in the first paragraph or so. <laughs> totally, totally. And so, he names two men, right? Yes, uh, specifically. At the end. Yep. So, so there's definitely an issue of um, bad theology that is bad enough to be dangerous. 
Mm-hmm. And so Paul is writing, and I do think it's really Paul writing really to uh, Timothy, although um, there are some who will date this letter later than mm-hmm. um, uh, than Paul, but I do think Paul wrote it. Um, and And so before I even get to chapter two, I need to be alert to the fact that there's going to be heresy that happens. Mm. And so then when I finally get to chapter two, um, we start getting instruction about how we should live holy lives. Yeah. And yeah. that that can that's such an important context for things. So when you think about these mainly Gentiles who are now coming into the church, what did they think holiness looked like? Mm. Well, we can be pretty sure what they thought it looked like. They're there in Ephesus. Ephesus had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, which I think I heard was uh, estimated at four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. Mm. Mm. For those of you who've ever been to the Parthenon, it's pretty big. (laughs) And to have it have something four times that size. And we know that festivals would go through the city mm-hmm. on a very regular basis. So our our um, brothers and sisters in the Lord who were raised in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, when they thought of holiness, they had a very different conception of what holiness looked mm-hmm. like than what Paul is trying to promote, mm-hmm. um, right? They, they were used to the story of Artemis, yeah. and they were used to um, money and religion being tightly tied together and people buying mm-hmm. their influence. And the Artemisian you know, was a bank, right? I mean, the oh, yeah. Artemisian mm-hmm. was a huge bank. Yep. In that Absolutely. Region. That's right. And people promoted themselves as devotees of Artemis and put up statues. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it, it, it just a very paganism was just a very different way of being religious <laughs> and yeah, now you have yeah. these people coming out i mean there were obviously jews as part of this community who did know the one true god who did understand what holiness is right and paul timothy was raised by his mom and grandma to also know that hmm. but a lot of the people coming into the church wouldn't have known that so um one of the key issues i think is um, when we look at uh, verses uh, 8 and following from chapter 2, we start to get a sense of how um, there are problems with um, competition among the men in terms of who can be the most holy and <laughs> among women, how they dress. And we know mm-hmm. there is what we would call provocative dress is how you might dress for some of these festivals. So Mm. Paul is saying, don't do that, and also don't flaunt your wealth. Um, And then when we finally come to verse 11, um, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, um, The or or you can say, let a woman learn. Mm -hmm. Um, That is is not in the command form, right? or I'm sorry, it is. So my uh, verse 11 is in the command form, even though my translation, uh, a woman should learn, um, could say, let a, um, let a woman learn. There, th- Paul is mandating that these women be taught. Hmm. And 
you know, women who grew up, Jewish women who grew up in the synagogue, they were naturally taught. The Word of God was spoken every week. It was read, you know, and, and they did uh, festival practices and they had Shabbat meal. And so they they were educated in a synagogue format. But there's no pagan analog to that. There's mm-hmm. no There's no education. Moreover, the education of women then and now can be a hotly contested cultural issue. When I lived in Kenya in the late 90s, and we lived in an area that was close to the Maasai, and we knew of stories where uncles would go to some of the schools and they would take their nieces when they turned about 13 or 14, and they would steal them from the schools and take them home and marry them because they had reached an age of being able to be married and they they felt that by that at at that point they should not mm-hmm. um they should not be in school that that corrupted them mm-hmm. and we i knew stories of women who were protected by their fathers their fathers said no you know i'm not going to let my brother do that to you mm-hmm. and we know of the story the very famous story that happened a couple of years ago in pakistan right where a girl yeah. was going to school malala and was shot and almost killed by, uh, again, this is another um, tradition altogether, who said, you know, girls should not, once they become of merit, of childbearing age, they shouldn't get education. In the same way, in the ancient world, there was a lot of suspicion around women being educated. Women could be mm-hmm. and were educated by their husbands and their fathers. It was happening at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a lot, there was a lot of suspicion around, yeah, women knowing things. And mm-hmm. uh, Juvenal, who wrote satire mm-hmm. and was a grumpy guy, I think just really a grumpy guy. And he has a lot of hyperbole <laughs> around women knowing things. And he compares it to like pots banging together. And <laughs> <he's>, uh, anyway, <clears throat> so he had opinions on just about everything. Um, but he that, was the first Twitter user, really. Exactly. Yeah. Thank goodness they didn't have it back then. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so so Paul is saying to Timothy, you have to make women's education a priority. There's mm. nothing in the pagan culture that's going to encourage you to do that. But your church is is now in the grips of a heresy. You've got to educate people. And we know how men can be educated. There's not the moral, um, sexual moral um, concerns around that. So he can move forward with that, but he's going to need to push for coming up with structures that allow for women to be um, educated. And then in verse 12, um, I do not per- permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Um, that actually is in the indicative. Mm-hmm. So you could translate it, I am not permitting a woman. Yeah. And I think what happens is we get these backwards. We mm-hmm. say, we think Paul is saying, you know, when you have time, Timothy, it'd be great to put a Bible study together, you know, like kind of one of those eight week kind of things for <laughs> the ladies in your church. And absolutely don't let them teach any man once he reaches an adult whatever they would call adult age um that's actually the opposite paul is demanding that women learn now they learn in quietness and full submission but that's how everybody learned then there wasn't 
yeah, very different educational expectations then. I am not permitting a woman to teach. And I do think that's what Paul is saying here. I don't permit a woman to teach, period. Because I think these women um, had, like the men, like the group that's mentioned at the beginning of the Mm -hmm. epistle, are teaching myths and endless genealogies and speculations and and they they need to learn before they can teach mm-hmm. and then i'm not permitting a woman to have authority over a man so that term have authority over is a uh, verb we don't find elsewhere in the new testament it's not the typical term that we find for authority right. that that's everywhere so i don't really love the translation have authority over because it's super negative right it's such a negative term it in the very few times that we find it used outside of the bible yeah it it is uh it's not the kind of authority that anyone should have over anybody else Hmm. you know it's not saying here's Hmm. your generic authority and men can use it but women can't it's like this type of authority nobody should use that's great that's a really great point and then it says over men the over men does go with this authority piece not with teach okay so in in a grammatical sense okay so that's the big debate right do the Mm -hmm. uh, teach and have authority is that expressing one idea or two right and you're saying it's two ideas i don't i'm not i'm not currently permitting a woman to teach and whether you'd put a comma or a semicolon or something there and then and then and then that the have authority. What, what's that? What's that? How does that clause relate to the the teaching bit? Is he expanding on it? Is he is he going to something else? Is he relating the two? I think there's a content issue here because mm-hmm. obviously Paul's okay with Priscilla teaching, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And he's okay with Phoebe reading the letter to the Romans to the Romans. And most people, when they read the letter. The assumption is, I mean, if it's Tishicus, the assumption is Tishicus will tell you so. That's what Paul said. He'll fill you in on everything. Mm-hmm. So Paul Paul believes women can speak authoritatively about the things of God to the people of God. I think yeah. that's that's the case. But in the problem, the problem situation that Timothy faces, there there is a content issue um, where I think he's saying the women can't teach uh i'm i'm not permitting them to teach right now and i'm i'm not permitting them to assume authority over a man and the reason i think is found in verses 13 and 14 Hmm. for adam was formed first then eve and adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a sinner and when i look at at those two verses what i see is an aspect of the heresy that is circulating in Ephesus at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a heresy that will develop um, early in the second century to become what we call Gnosticism. Yeah, it's proto-Gnosticism, right? Yep, yep. And when you look at some of the, which I did just a few minutes ago before our, our call, just to refresh <laughs> my mind, because I don't usually read Gnostic texts, just for our listeners well, to I mean, realize you know, that. <laughs> sure. But... Um, but it is amazing. I had forgotten just how weird to our mind this uh, these Gnostic texts are. The Gnostic texts, we've known about Gnostics from the church fathers, Irenaeus 
uh, church father that lived in the late second century talks about them. And, and we know them by name. We've got like Valentinus, one of the uh, mm. earlier ones who operated in Rome around the 130s, 140s. Uh, and earlier we have like the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel mm -hmm, of Philip, mm -hmm. I remember when the Adam. Jesus Seminar made huge news with the Gospel of Thomas. Yes. Way back yeah. in the 90s. Yes, yes. It was a and big I, deal. I think Gospel of Thomas is early second century. I don't think it's first century. But nevertheless, some of the ideas that are in it, hmm. basically what they're saying is that Eve was not a sinner and mm -hmm. she wasn't deceived. Um, she brought real knowledge because she revealed to Adam the um, falseness of the creator demigod. Mm. They do a whole mm. a whole yeah. retelling of Genesis mm -hmm. and they turn it upside down. So they're very negative on created material. Mm -hmm. And that's why they would say like Jehovah God is not the one true God. Um, but Eve, what she does as wisdom is enlighten Adam. Well, if there's any of the, uh, the other thing that they have, let me just add, the other thing that the Gnostics do is they speculate a lot about the emanations from the pure light, the mm -hmm. what we would call one true God, the, the pure light. And so you have these various spiritual beings. Salvation is going through these levels as you get higher and higher, more spiritual, more spiritual. So it's all about knowledge. It's all about spirit and leaving the, the mm -hmm. body and that the body is bad. Well, if you have those ideas and then you turn to Genesis, yeah, that's <laughs> going to reread it. Yeah. And so I don't think that Paul is trying to say here that Adam is formed first and therefore he's better. That's right. what Philo, a Jew who lived just before Paul, that's what he argues. The female is inferior. The female was taken from man, and so the female is inferior. The man was made from the earth directly by God, but the female is inferior. Well, I, you know, I just don't see that in Genesis. I don't think that's what Paul thinks, um, it, that somehow the, the male is more perfect. Aristotle thought that. Yeah. Philo's drawing on Aristotle's thought, but I don't think that's what Paul is doing. So instead, what I think the this heresy uh, is related to Artemis. Uh, it's related to proto-Gnosticism. Um, Artemis was seen as the goddess who protects through childbearing. Yeah. Uh, there is some um, myths about the Ar Artemis beginning that is she's uh, born first from uh, instead of her brother Apollos and so, you know, the, I feel like they're just pulling together some of these myths. They're speculating about the heavenlies. And yeah, later yeah. it gets codified and produced into texts and taught, and it becomes a really bad heresy. You don't mm -hmm. have that yet, but you've got some of it. And that's why the women must learn. And that's why they have to understand Genesis. Adam was formed first. Adam wasn't deceived, right? Eve was deceived. She's not the heroine in the story the way the Gnostics present it. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. that's huge. Yeah. That is that is massive. And and is that is the educational system? Is that the reason why Paul in Corinthians will say, "Ask your questions to your husbands at home," 
um, instead of disrupting the the church service was because it was just assumed that that's where women were educated. Yes, uh, that would be the the expectation. Yes, um, if that's what what he is asking there. I mean, there is no law. He kind of goes on to say this is what the law says and there isn't actually any old testament right. law that supports that so i i also could imagine the um uh corinthians themselves trying to impose things um mm. that um are extra biblical uh, mandate and i say that in part because uh there were a lot of widows and um slaves we think there were maybe 20 percent of the christian population were slaves in any mm. given community wow they're not going to be able to ask their husband at home they have no yeah. husband um and then i don't know what percentage would be of widows but the people <laughs> they died at young ages and so mm. it i don't know if it's 20 percent of women had been married once and are no longer married i mean that's I just can't imagine Paul saying, you know, to 40% of the women who are not not yet married, have been married and are now widows or who are slaves. I'm sorry, you you'll just have to continue to wonder in silence yeah. because <laughs> there's nobody you can ask. Yeah. You know, it just yeah. um yeah, mm. I don't think by the way, I don't think that women were uh gossipy or yelling across the room at at their husbands and disrupting things that way yeah. in as much as i think paul paul at least was very familiar with synagogue um worship and at this time in the first century the synagogues were not separated by gender that wasn't like how the orthodox hmm. jews hmm. today separate men on one side women on the other that wasn't the case in in the first century and so you were just sitting next to your husband or whoever you happen to be with. Um, I also think the um, there was a um, if there was a sense of disorder, which clearly there was in chapter fourteen. The people are speaking up; they're being they're they're speaking in tongues and they're not waiting for it to be interpreted. You know, and Paul says that God is a God of order, not of disorder, and the spirit of the prophet is under the authority of the prophet so you can wait your turn <laughs> you don't mm. have to speak over each other um that there's um uh that that's that's the the disorder that's happening it's not generated because women haven't learned uh to sit quietly uh in a yeah well isn't that isn't the instruction to women uh for women to be quiet that's the third be quiet um command isn't it in that in that chapter i thought um oh in eight and uh, 14. In 14 yeah yeah well, it, was, it, it very well could be tongue yeah, speakers were to be sense. quiet mm -hmm. unless there was an interpretation and i think there was one more maybe about prophecy mm -hmm. but that same verb or command was mm -hmm. used not just of the women uh, but of right. of other groups um as well which was a surprising thing i realized and like oh okay got it do you and i mean this is total bible geek question but do you think those <laughs> verses are authentic there are you like uh a la gordon fee uh, in terms of he argues they they either don't belong or well i, I mean I'm, I'm telling you things you already are an expert in so what do you think about that one 
Well, I, I did follow Fee in that, that they were an interpolation, a later interpolation. Um, but I'm more convinced now uh, with uh, the argument put forward by Lucy Pepiot uh, in, in some of her work where she talks about how she thinks there's that Paul is arguing uh, against the Corinthian and a group within the mm-hmm. Corinthian community that is trying to uh, to assert a um, uh, male priority uh, where Paul doesn't see that with with the mm. gospel. And the, the thing that really actually changed my mind on that was in chapter 14, mm. Paul cites their quotation of um, it's a it's a collection of Isaiah, I think it's that's where it is, Isaiah um, 28, 11 and 12. With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they won't listen to me. But actually, when you go, when you look at both the Hebrew and the Greek, and they, there's a few variants between those two. Nevertheless, what is quoted here in First Corinthians fits neither of those. It really actually changes the mm. the mm. meaning of the words of Isaiah, and I just don't see Paul ever doing that. Paul, to me, even if his, even if there might be a variant or so in his quotation, nevertheless, there's a, it, it follows the meaning of the of the prophet or or the text in mm-hmm. the ancient, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in in the uh, Old Testament. And so here, uh, I thought that's right. This this looks kind of wrong. And mm. and so if you read that section though as Paul citing the Corinthians, and then after that's correcting them, mm-hmm. I think it yeah. makes a lot more sense. Yep. Therefore, yep. I could yep. also see him then saying, um, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says, which the law never says anywhere. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful mm-hmm. for a woman to speak in the church. And then, or did the word of God originate with you? I think Paul is citing their argument and then saying, wait a minute, did the word of God originate with you? Because after all, it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church, except that they are praying and prophesying in verse, in chapter 11. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and yes. Junia is, uh, is with her husband or brother Andronicus in jail at times because she's speaking the gospel and mm-hmm. phoebe is reading the very word of god romans mm-hmm. to the the romans and yodi and syntyche are doing something and in in their churches and nympha is leading the church or the church that is meeting in her home and i could just go on and on with women who are actively speaking yeah, yeah. and that whereas in the uh, broader Greco-Roman world, the uh, woman's voice in public is problematic. Um, mm, and so, yeah, yeah mm. I, um, if I, thinking of this woman's voice being problematic, one of the more, uh, well, I don't know how to say it, but. Uh, Use cuss words if you need to. What's that? Use cuss words if you need to. It's okay. Tim's Tim's heard them all. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, no I uh, actually wasn't thinking that 
Mike at, <laughs> at all. But uh, <laughs> okay, I couldn't tell. I thought, maybe, right. I thought maybe I thought maybe there was something coming of, there. Yeah, Plutarch writes uh, there it is. Uh, advice to the bride and groom, and I was trying to think of like he's he's kind of sounding sort of modern, sort of pro woman. Got it. Um, but even in that, which is. You know, it's it's not horribly misogynistic like so much in the first century. <laughs> Nevertheless, even he will use images that it, it's just clear that the woman doesn't doesn't have a public opinion. She doesn't mm. even really have a private opinion, but she certainly wouldn't give a public opinion. And and she follows her husband's um, uh, lead. I don't want to necessarily say desire because for us that often only means sexual desire. I mean, whatever, whatever he imagines as good, a good wife says, yes, that's good and enters into that. And his friends are her friends and his yeah. ideas are her ideas. And, and she becomes a good wife by being what he imagines a good wife to be. Mm. And Plutarch, of course, wants this man to be a good, stoic who's rational so i mean it, it's not like he would allow for awful behavior that then yeah. the, the woman has to but i i you know that vision that plutarch has of what um the the fulfillment of of a woman is one where she's where she doesn't say much and so in mm. uh if at all so i could imagine in corinth some of the men in the congregation who are still very tied to their the their worldly uh views or the views of the wider culture saying it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church mm. and but that's just not true because mm. these women are speaking and paul encourages them yeah. praying and prophesying right prophesying yeah. so i think the that um yeah, that's how I would, in kind of a long answer. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, Tim, I, Tim, I think you had a question. I do. I didn't want to interrupt you guys because you guys are, this is all fascinating. Um, I want to zoom out a little bit. And I think the thing that always bothers me the most <clears throat> when I think about this topic is how much work goes into, whether it's gender, sexuality, or race, how much work goes into trying to keep hierarchical structures and people just, it's just this constant kind of tumble dry of people trying to enforce these ideas over and over and over again and how much work goes in for a faith that's based in, um, you know, mm -hmm. inclusion and love and kind of Paul breaking down a lot of those binaries. Um, and so I, I think about that and then, you know, you mentioned being in your 20s and kind of that being the time and place where you start to generate you start to build foundational beliefs kind of that you'll grow into adulthood with. And so I teach English, but it's at a Christian college. And so the, my age group is that demographic. And, you know, the reason we started this little series and conversation on biblical masculinity and femininity and whatnot is because of so many mostly white men coming out and just, you know, chastising everybody and talking about the lack of manhood and advocating for all these kind of like getting back into these manly ideas and what a man is. And so, and that's all fine with, you know, we can push back on that stuff on an academic level with 
these guys that are in their 50s and 60s and 70s. But for my students that are like in their 20s, um, I'll have them, you know, I can think of two or three students right now that just wrote papers this semester arguing for advocating for an ideal of manhood and kind of lamenting on a really, you know, freshman, non-English writing level of of trying to advocate that they feel like this is something that's being taken away from them. And mm. it's like, that's kind of our posture is, especially again, as white men, we are always combating the fear of people taking away from us. And so whether it's saying, hey, women have an equal stage here, it's like, well, no, uh, a woman needs to know her place beneath us or if it's race or if it's sexuality. So I think my question is very, uh, as I said, pulled back and looking at that generation that they're not, they don't have their toes in the academic, the academia of all of it yet, but they are entering into a world of trying to negotiate these binaries that have been handed to them and have been told them, especially in the last six years or so, that there is a threat that's out to take away from them. How you like begin that conversation of saying, hey, this is not, it's not that, it's this. Does that make sense? Like, how would you it speak does. to the people in their 20s that are the ones that are going to inherit the church and are going to inherit family structures and all this kind of stuff that we have handed down that still pushes for these binaries and still pushes for these um, hierarchical structures that are trying to keep people in places. Yeah, now that's a, well, a, a couple of things occur to me. One is, I think just the, the way that you're phrasing it of male and female, um, that has to be binarily opposite, right? Um, the first story in Genesis of, the, of creation tells it as male and female, he created them. And then they're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over it. And, and you get this sense of real teamwork. In other words, the emphasis is not on how is a man different than a woman? In fact, even in the second account or the more detailed account in chapter two of creation, when, when Adam sees Eve, it is, ah, finally, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We're together now. I've named all the animals and none of them, even the even the dogs, which surprised me, even the dogs, he's not going to take his <laughs> companions. Um, but it's now finally I have her. In other words, the biblical text does not encourage this opposite view, like somehow man is opposite of woman. That's mm. from Aristotle, right? And I'm not saying there's no difference between male and female, not at all. But what I'm saying is that what Aristotle did was describe male as perfect and mm -hmm. then female as opposite of that and inferior. And so I feel like when we do binaries, almost by definition, the one has, if the one is described as hot, then the other has to be cold. Or if the one is described as up, the other one has to be down. There's no. Yeah. way to think about difference that's not uh, opposite. Yep. Yeah. So that would be one thing. Secondly, I would really encourage them to read the Gospels, like read them slowly. Think about how Jesus is described. Hmm. Because he is fully human, so he's my model as much as he is your model. Um, but as a man, um, he he seemed to 
resist the Roman masculinity mm-hmm. push that is actually very similar to American masculinity. <laughs> uh, and and it's and he doesn't he doesn't pull into that. He there is a vulnerability with Jesus uh, that um, as our Savior we can model uh, and and we should. So that would be something else I think that I would go to. And then third, I would say, think a little bit more deeply about this notion that you feel something's been taken away. This kind of zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Um, and sit with that for a little bit. What does it mean that you feel somebody else took your toy? Is that because they didn't have the toy to play with and now and now they do? Um, does that mean that you kept all for yourself something that maybe is a good that you don't want to share with others? Um, you know, what is it that that um, I almost feel like at times when men, young men say that they they are not reflecting enough on what that means for their sisters uh, in the faith who have maybe similar, as humans, similar desires. There is a great little book, you probably know about it, Dorothy Sayers, Are Women Human? Mm-hmm. Yes. And <laughs> Which, that, man, with, that's got some doozy quotes in that one. It is so good. It is so good. And she wrote it, what, 1938. Yeah. So there's, it has, an, it has enough cultural mm-hmm. uh you know, unfamiliarity, and it's not really super threatening that way. Um, and it's written at a time, you know, women for a long time couldn't vote. Mm-hmm. For a long time, they couldn't vote. I think women were finally admitted into uh, St. John's College in Cambridge in 1980. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Isn't I that no amazing? It was that recent. Oh, it's incredibly recent. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope, well, mm-hmm. one of your listeners will be able to tell as if I misspoke on that, but one of the colleges <laughs> was that late. Um, and yeah, and, and people were really mad at that. So I think, you know, the fellows in your class, I don't think they would want to take the vote away from women. But when they, if they ever read the arguments for why women shouldn't vote, it's because they'll cancel out their husband's vote. It's because they're um, irrational. They're, you know, they, they can't understand the things of the state. All stuff that we know is just not true, or yeah. not true only for women. <laughs> and and um, it sounds like the arguments are, that are very similarly employed against women in church leadership. Right. Oh, yeah. Very, yeah. Well, what was the thing last week or two weeks ago that we saw tweeted was someone was advocating why women shouldn't be in leadership is because they're too empathetic and, and too inclusive. inclusive. Yeah. Or like, wow, okay. those are the yeah. those were the those were the checks against for empathy yeah. and inclusion. So usually you don't start with women, you start with something else, right? Like what is good leadership? Authoritarianism. Right. Okay, mm-hmm. well you're right. We don't tend to raise women to be authoritarian. <laughs> so they might not fit that. Okay. But there's usually something else going on. And that yeah. I think is the case with uh with some of your male students. They, yeah. There's something else kind of going on. Um yeah. and yeah, you know, I I um, never went to seminary, in part because what? Well, I know, I know, um, <laughs> crazy. Well, you know, I assumed I would. I finished with a religious studies degree, and I thought I'd 
you know, go on to get my MDiv and then go on for my PhD, but the church would not sign a oh. letter of recommendation for me. Yeah, Come they didn't. Come on! Yep, I know. Jeez. So anyway, they uh, they would allow me to go if I studied church history or Christian education. And as you know, I already tried the education route and that wasn't right. going to happen. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, but... and. Uh, and I just think God has such a sense of humor because now here I am, provost of a seminary. Totally. But anyway, totally. Um, <laughs> totally. it's just awesome. But um, <laughs> it, when I was teaching at Wheaton in our senior seminar class, there were always about 25% of our majors were women. Hmm. So that was the makeup of this class. Let's say we had maybe 20, 25 students. And as part of the class, everyone talked about what would be next steps after they graduated. And there was a woman who was the smartest person in the class. Like everybody knew that, but she was also the most gracious. Mm. Just uh, that's a rare combo. Yeah, just really so uh, self-effacing and unassuming, and just off the charts brilliant. And so, anyway, when she said, "What am I going to do?" You know, she's answering that question to everyone. She said, "Well, I did want to go on to Princeton, and I think she had a really good scholarship there, um, but." my church will not sign a recommendation for me because they don't think women should go to seminary to study Bible. Well, my heart broke because I thought, you're kidding me. Like, this is the next generation and we're still in that spot. But I also watched, especially the men around the room, many of whom were in a denomination similar to hers, which they also knew, yeah, none of my denomination will not send any woman. So, mm any of my classmates here, including the smartest and most humble Christian in the group, I don't have to compete with her once I get to seminary <laughs> or yeah. I not even if I think compete, you know, like we're not competing for a seat in that classroom because my, ch I, I've put my thumb on the scale. My church has put its thumb on the scale. Yeah. Those women aren't going to go. Now her story ends well because she was actually able to get a letter, not from her church, but from someone else who could vouch for her. And so she went on. But just mm. watching the young men kind of process through, ah, you know, I was raised that women shouldn't go to seminary, but it was an abstraction to me. Mm. And I didn't really think about it, but now it has a face and it has a face mm. of my friend who mm. I know would excel. And I know is not out for power or greedy or any of those stereotypes that are often stated, you know, about women who who are uh, reaching above themselves. <laughs> right. Oh, well, Lynn, man, this, this is so good, so helpful. Thank you for your work in all of this. Thank you for persevering through all of those um, obstacles to become, you know, a, a really preeminent New Testament scholar and provost um we need a better i mean it's a cool title but we can do better i mean i'm thinking like emperor of student affairs um, yeah that's czar, good that's good that's any right of those uh, mm -hmm. provost just sounds okay is that a farm thing um it actually was like i think it goes back to like being a jailer oh, yeah. interesting <laughs> i know something like that yeah it's definitely Perfect. Perfect. That, <laughs> it fits sometimes. <laughs> the herder of cats is what it should be because yes, that's really yes, a provost yes. deal with uh, faculty. But anyway, <laughs> where are where can people find more about you? Do you assume you want us to direct them to your website? <clears throat> well, yeah. Although I'm so technically challenged and all that stuff that I don't really have. Yes, they can go to my website. Um, 
at Northern Seminary, um, we have the Center for Women in Leadership. That yeah. would be a good place for them to go and, and uh, get resources. And um, yeah, that. so, but I, I like, I joined Facebook years and years ago when our kids went off to college and I said, you know, well, that will be my way to uh, stalk you. I mean, see your pictures and get to meet your friends that way. And, you know, now they graduated, so there's no, yeah, I anyway. I know. I'm really I, bad. I'm really bad on that stuff. No, that's all right. That's all right. I just didn't know um, if there and was I, some super secret, you know, organization that that you were featured in that, you know, the National Provost Association, <laughs> you know, some some sort of website. I don't know. Just check no, it. I just had to. No, but, I, you know, I would encourage uh, women if they're interested and men, all of your listeners to um, check out my podcast, The Alabaster Jar. I so, didn't know you had a podcast. Yeah, yeah. the alabaster what? jar. Mm -hmm. Let me yeah, just throw in one last. Yeah, not as good as this one, of what? course, but you know, maybe eventually. Yeah. Hey, how fun is yeah. that? Well, yeah. if you ever need white middle-aged men, because the world needs more of those, <laughs> we're available. And awesome. you know what you're you know what you're getting. You're getting one face and a heavyweight in the more literal sense, but. <laughs> Thank you. And that's a nice tie-in, Mike, by the way. Kind of bookends. <laughs> you know? that's, you're a pro. You're I a pro. Mean, what that's, can we say? That's it. What, that's what it. can we say? This is this is what we do. <laughs> um, Lynn, thanks. Seriously, it's great yeah. to meet you finally. And, you. and just appreciate your generosity with your time and expertise. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxology. You can also Join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology Podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.